All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. Last week, we didn't get the lecture recorded, but I have some good news for you. It would be good to know right off the bat that the most important part of last week's discussion was question 118 and 119. We're looking at actual sins and all the differences in terms of distinctions and nature of various actual sins that we commit. Getting that three-dimensional understanding of sins is essential and is essential for what comes next, which is the article on contrition. Now, if you missed last session, that's fine. We, or if on account of uh, it not being recorded, if you're following along online, that's also fine. Because there is, just as of today, an interview put out by the Gottesdienst crowd, okay, G-O-T-T-E-S, D-E-I-N-S-T, Gottesdienst crowd. So, T-C-G, the, wait, T-G-C, the Gottesdienst crowd, episode 290, which is called The Homogenization of Sin. And that is sure to be a wonderful teaching on this particular point of doctrine, one of the things that has ailed us most is whether you call it the homogenization of sin or sin leveling or there's all kinds of other names out there for it. It's this idea that all sin is equal. That's predicated upon a, a very important truth. All sin is equally damning. That's the truth. But not all sin is equal. And again, this is self-evident simply because if your child says, you know, I hate my brother, that might, you know, that's a certain level of, well, okay, we have to address this as a parent. But if they say, but if they say I hate my brother, and then they punch him in the face, now you've got a deeper issue, a deeper sin. There has to be a more quick and decisive parental reaction. Okay, so that's just one example. We all know that there's greater and lesser sins in real life. And the Bible teaches just the same. So we can look, if you, if you glance at 118 and 119, <clears throat> on page 64, that'll be sufficient. So on the top of 164, Chemnitz talks of those that are interior in mind, will, and heart. So there's sins of the intellect, sins of the will, and sins of the emotions. The mind, the will, and the heart. And then exterior in attitudes. And that might be one that frequently misses our attention. Attitudes, as well as then words and deeds. We add another dimension of consideration when we think of sins of commission or omission. And then listed with some redundancy in 119 are these categories. Some are internal sins, some external, some are manifest, some hidden or concealed, some are of commission, some are of omission, some are done by thought, will, desires, 
It is also sin to give occasion to sin, to share in sins of others. Some are done directly against God, some against the neighbor, some against ourselves. All divisions like this are taught for this purpose, that we might somehow learn to acknowledge and consider with how many kinds of sins, various even to the point of being innumerable, we pollute ourselves. And yet that statement of David nevertheless remains, Psalm 19.12, who understands his faults? So a proper understanding of the law and the result that we have a proper understanding of our sinful nature is there that we might be contrite. That's why contrition comes next. And ultimately, though, it is precisely that in knowing the depth of our sins and the true nature and specificity of our sins, we might be directed all the more to Christ and his atoning death and the specificity of his forgiveness. So a a sin leveling happens or a homogenization of sin, but likewise also a gospel leveling or a homogenization of the gospel. And that is to say the gospel itself becomes superficial, shallow, platitudinous. So I'll, I'll say something that might sound a little dramatic, but I mean for it to just drive home the point of particularity and specificity. The gospel is different for you than it is for another person. How so? Because your sins are different. And so the forgiveness of Christ applied to you is going to be different. While it's true you've violated all ten of the commandments, it's not true that you violated all ten of the commandments in every single way. And certainly not to the same degree of severity that perhaps someone else has, or maybe to a greater degree of severity than someone else has. The point being that neither sin nor the gospel nor the forgiveness of sins are just these monolithic, cliche, one-size-fits-all. While we can ignore whether or not it's factually correct in its details, a book like Dante's Inferno can be really helpful because you realize in that, in that poem a specificity of sin, a degree of sinners, and a justice that meets that with certain levels of punishment one receives and not another. Likewise, the, re- the mirror reversal of that is the for- forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus is specific to you and your sins. The absolution, properly speaking, is not just a blanket. Um, your sins are forgiven, but hidden within that word are all of your internal and external sins, your manifest and hidden sins, those you've done and those things you've left undone, um, those of the thought, will, and desire, but also those of the attitudes, words, and deeds, etc., etc. So it is of the utmost importance that we not allow the law to become generic in such a way that we just say, I'm a sinner, or the gospel to become generic, which is what happens next, which is just, but I'm forgiven. That, has a, that platitudinous way of looking at faith has a way of deadening faith and destroying faith over time. 
Indeed, we, we thought and conversed a bit last week about how the claim, when we don't look at the specificity of our sins, the specificity of the law and the kinds and ways that each one of us has sinned particularly, the problem then is that we simply say, well, I'm a sinner, and then before long that just becomes a boast of one's orthodoxy. I'm a sinner, but I'll hear nothing of the ways in which I actually am a sinner. Or, I'm forgiven, but I'll hear nothing about the actual specificity of that forgiveness, because that would also indicate a kind of specificity of my personal sin. So this three-dimensionality awakes us to the reality, the objective nature of the sins we commit against God and of the forgiveness that he bestows upon us. And while the categories are universal, what's hidden within those categories are specifics pertaining to you as an individual or to a people as a group. Make sense? Okay, so do check out... uh, TGC, the Gottesdienst crowd, 290, the homogenization of sin, and you'll have a nice fill-in for what we covered last week. Now, this week, we turn to contrition on the bottom of page 64. And I'm sorry for the long introduction, but let's open with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, contrition. Question 121. But what does it serve to rebuke sin on the basis of the law, threaten sinners with the wrath of God, and terrify them with divine threats? Answer, that they might repent, fear the wrath of God, and turn from sins. Question 122. Is repentance or contrition necessary? Answer, by all means. For John the Baptist, Christ, Peter, Paul, etc., begin their sermons with that point. Repent. References uh, Luke 13, 3 and 5, Isaiah 66, 2, and Jeremiah 5. When the people despised exhortations to repentance, continued in sins, and gradually heaped more of them up, The Lord finally said, verse 7, How then can I be merciful to thee? So important, and you're going to run across this as you read the scriptures, that contrary to what many preachers say, there is a limitation to God's mercy. At least in the short term. There are times where God gets so fed up with people, he says, no. And even if you do repent, I'm not going to hear it. And I'm not going to answer your prayers either. There are just, I mean, it is just point blank in the scriptures where God says this. 
those are absolutely necessary things for us to take into our hearts and into our souls because why? God is not a system of doctrine. God is not a set of ideas. God is not an economy, a spiritual or theological economy that can be manipulated. In this sense, even if the language is a bit inaccurate, it's best to consider God as a person. That is to say, he has his, the, his own limits of patience, his own limits of tolerance. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but that doesn't mean he doesn't ever anger or doesn't ever cut people off. And so that is an absolutely essential part of the revelation of God because that's particularly what keeps us in a godly fear. And fearing his wrath, fearing that we have finally taken, or that we might finally take that step that's one too far and puts us beyond his grace. That fear is a good and godly fear. The opposite of it is ultimately manifest in an impenitent and hardened heart that simply won't hear God whatsoever. Okay, so this is the way in which God reveals himself to us in the scriptures. And again, the point of this is not only to have God right in our minds, but also to have God right in our minds when he looks upon us as unlovely and unlovable and yet loves us enough that while we are still his enemies, he gives his only begotten son. So you only grasp or regrasp the profundity of the gospel when you grasp or regrasp the true horrific nature of sin in all of its inglorious specificity and uniqueness and individuality. Okay, so those two things are going to go hand to hand. And when someone like Walther will write the law in its full sternness and the gospel in its full sweetness, he doesn't mean uh, yell the law with an angry face and uh, preach the gospel with some buttery smile and sprinkle a bunch of Jesus dust around it, you know, as you do. What he means is be as specific as the law is be as specific as the word of God is. If that causes us to fear and tremble in the presence of God, yeah, that's spiritual health. Okay, And yet, then to cling to his mercy in Christ Jesus and see with what links he has loved us, with what long suffering and patient endurance has he kept us as his children, we marvel at his true graciousness. So there's then this idea of, it's in the catechism, of fear, love, and trust above God, in God above all things. We've just touched two of those. Fear and trust. So to fear God above all things. And that also, by the way, makes one very brave and bold in the face of other human beings. Because if you fear God and nothing else, and you fear God more than anything else, you're not going to fear what man can do to you. So that fear is very healthy in a multifaceted way. And then that trust is simply to throw oneself upon his mercy. 
no matter how holy you get, no matter how mature in the faith you get, no matter how much theology you learn, uh, no matter how much you exceed and excel beyond others, this principle remains forever true in the genuine Christian heart. You throw yourself upon the mercy of God and nothing else. That's it. If he won't have you, there's no hope. Now, he's, he who has given his only begotten son for you, will he have you? Yes. And that's his, that's his gracious fatherly heart at which we marvel. But there, and there, that's as we start to marvel, casting ourselves upon him in full trust, as we start to marvel at the excellency of what he's done for creatures such as we, then we start to love. So, the, properly speaking, then, fear... Trust, love. Law, gospel, fruits of the law and the gospel. Fear or contrition, faith, trust, and then love and a change in, in affection as we marvel at who God is and what he, what he truly puts up with and tolerates from us on a daily basis, and yet daily and richly forgives and overlooks. Okay, so that's trying to give a big picture of what uh, Chemnitz is on about and what the scriptures are on about in this particular section regard to contrition. Let me pause there because I've <clears throat> said a lot of words. Let me see if there's anything we need to think on. I never quite heard it that way that God just like, I've had enough of this. Um, how I understood it before was that God, if we keep on rejecting God, rejecting Him, rejecting Him, then our hearts become callous. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't even have repentance. We wouldn't just, we, we couldn't care less. Yeah. So, and that respect, would it be that that hardening of heart is done by us and just by mercy and our deathbed perhaps that our hearts be softened, but most of the time they're not because of the hardening of our, our hearts? Yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just don't think it cancels anything else that's been said. I think we can hold those truths together. So it's true enough that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's also true that God hardens hearts. So we can, you can even, if you zoom all the way out, there's a paradox here, and human reason's unable to accept it, but both points are taught by Scripture, even though they're irreconcilable to fall in human logic. The first is gratia universalis, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But the second is sola gratia, that men come to the knowledge of the truth only on account of God, God's grace. So which is it? If he wants all men to be saved, and he alone can save, then why aren't all men saved? There's no answer that satisfies human reason. But do the scriptures teach 
that God desires all men to be saved? Yes. Do the scriptures teach that even faith is not our own doing, but is the gift of God? Yes. So how do we reconcile that in our minds? We don't. So is it true that human beings are at fault when they go to hell? Yeah. A microcosm of this is even Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but the heavenly Father before the foundation of the world created you for damnation and for his glory. Sorry. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, how I long to gather you together, but you would not have it. Now, while that's true, it is also true that God hardens hearts. While it is on the one hand true that God's mercy endures forever, it is also on the other hand true that he says, that's it. What's the language here? How then can I be merciful to thee? Okay, so what, what is God doing in these scriptures? He's not interested in being comprehensible to us. Why? I mean, in the first place, because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. But in the second place, our sinful nature wants to comprehend God so that we can be God. It's the same thing we do with other people. We want to comprehend other people so that we can get them to do what we want them to do. And the same thing is true with God, which is why everywhere in his word he refuses to be comprehensible. He will always be outside of our reason. We'll say, well, that doesn't make sense. Maybe I shouldn't even believe this nonsense. Well, then you're sitting on the throne of your own heart condemning God. So other than that, you have to, and this is again where I think Chemnitz, to some degree, and more my read of Chemnitz and interpretation of Chemnitz at this point, is focused not so much on the comprehensibility of God, why why he chooses to do or be all these seemingly contradictory ways, but rather on what the the intended result of that is in our hearts. In the human heart, it is that we would first fear God or be contrite, And second, that we would trust in him as our only hope. That is, have faith and be believing. And then on account of the marvel of the gospel that he grants to us, begin to love him. And so the focus of the law and the gospel and the intended work of God they have upon our hearts, that's the more important part than trying to sort out how God works, and why God does this in this case, but not the other, and is that fair, and can we understand a system, can we comprehend God? So this is a kind of high-water point of theology where we have to admit our creatureliness, and we either will humble ourselves and receive God's revelation, or we will assert ourselves over him and act as though we were God and he were in the dock. So I know that's kind of a lengthy, long description there, but that's why there are so many mysteries around this question. And again, if you get the question all the way to the 
fundamental point, it's what we call the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologians, and it's cur uh, ali non ali, so why some, not others. Now that has its all kinds of different like tentacles, as it were, or root system, as it were, coming out from it, going in all different directions, but that's the fundamental question. And why God refuses to answer it is because on that point, he does not want to be comprehensible because he knows our nature, that if we comprehended it, we would simply abuse it. Please. I I was just thinking about it as you were talking, that in some ways, uh, I think we can gain insight into this hardening, this responsibility of a person. And that is when Paul talks about God gives them over to their passions. And it's like the hardening happens when the person insists, right? Insists mm-hmm. and insists. It's like that's when the hardening happens. I think about there. Mm-hmm. Right? So you think some person might just add a cursory read that story of Pharaoh and say, well, God's not fair. He hardened Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh insisted on those things. Mm-hmm. So there's both a personal responsibility, and I agree, we can't understand where does one begin and stop, but mm-hmm. I think that insight, what Paul says, God gave them over, gives us at least an insight in when we, when we maybe talk to somebody um, that they don't want to hear it, they don't want to repent because they insist on it, they will not repent. And my second thought on this was, it almost seems like to me that 121, that question is that not the, or should that not be the starting point for evangelism? Right there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we don't, it's the other way around in our world, right? In our <laughs> right. We don't want to start here. Mm-hmm. We want to start with God has a plan for your, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, isn't this where we should start? I mean, this is not making very good Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, you, you bring up two points, and that is that Christianity here in America for quite some time, how long, I don't exactly know, but for, for my entire life, let's say, and certainly before it, Christianity in America has been more interested in seeing God as not fair or not just or not equally gracious and sort of marveling at, well, well why, doesn't, why won't God convert this person the way he converted me? which is a very different question or a very different orientation than saying, well, I know God's good. And I know he's tried to convert you. So why, ha- why are you resisting? That's, a, that's the orientation that if one looks at the history of the church, is far more prevalent. So this is kind of what I mean sometimes when I use the shorthand, we need to recapture the high ground. That is to say, we really just need our faith strengthened in the sense that God does reign. He is good. He is true. The gospel is going forth. And when men reject it, that's on them. And in our apologetic task, or even, and I know that sounds fancy and formal, as we're talking to our friends and family members, the onus needs to be put on them, not on God. Why are you rejecting? Why is your heart hard? Why are you suppressing the knowledge of your creator? 
And that leads then into this sense of contrition. You know, why do you sit in judgment upon God? Well, and you know, you, con- you commonly get this. It's been around forever in the 20th century, probably earlier. Yeah, definitely earlier. This idea of, um, well, a God who gives uh, babies cancer, a God who blah, 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 you know, um, allows all these evils and atrocities to occur could never be my God. Just so you know, you're sitting in judgment of whatever God does exist. Interesting that you've made yourself God, and interesting, where have you come up with these criteria of good and evil by which you are now judging God? Please do tell. So again, it's, that's just a, a narrow example of what I mean by we need to regain the high ground that St. Paul just innately understood. And we're so worried about not sounding gracious to our neighbor, or we're worried about condemning ourselves. Well, that's something we also have to get over. The law does condemn us. And when we teach, when we teach the law to, the, to our neighbor or confront our neighbor in, our sin, in his sins, just because we're guilty of those same commandments, perhaps even those same sins, doesn't exclude us. That's not a Christian understanding of what hypocrisy is. If it were, I could never preach the Ten Commandments to you because I'm guilty of violating all of them to one degree or another. Okay, So we have to get over that. We have to recapture the high ground. We have to speak authoritatively about these things, putting the onus on the sinner who's rejecting God in his way. And then similarly, though, that just sets you up for if and when the Holy Spirit does work contrition. You need to have that high ground to say, be reconciled to God because God has reconciled himself to you in Christ Jesus. And in this way and in no other. Because your sins are so great they could not be overcome except through the death of his own beloved son. So that recapturing the high ground in this whole conversation is of the utmost importance in terms of our our way of talking with each other. In terms of our own personal piety, it's to realize you're never going to swim up top of the doctrine and be like, okay, well, as long as I just repent and you know, feel bad and go to the Lord's Supper, I can just be guaranteed I'm okay, that God does not grant that kind of security. And that's precisely then the title of this particular spiritual ailment it's, the, it's what our fathers used to call security. So there's faith which grasps hold of the word of God and entrusts it, but never in such a way does faith go, I can never lose it, I can never fall, I could go commit 10 murders right now and be just fine and still end up in heaven because Jesus died for me and died for every sin that's ever going to be committed. A soul that's doing that is poisoned and is using doctrine as if it were a game, and has lost complete and entire sight that God is a living being, a living person, again, to use non-technical language, who can very easily look and say, I'm not going to be mocked. I can see exactly what you're doing. And no, I'm not okay. And no, I'm not playing along. Now, when this becomes institutionalized, this sort of cold callousness toward God and this failure to see him as a living being, 
um, what you have is you've got this Latin phrase that pops up all the time in our confessions. That's ex opera operato. And that's by the doing of the deed itself. So this was an Old Testament reality and then it's had its New Testament parallel. It's this idea that as long as I just, you know, do the sacrifice, that's the Old Testament, you know, as long as I do the sacrifice, or the New Testament is as long as I go to the Lord's Supper, just as long as I remember my baptism, as long as I claim Abraham as my father, then I can just go on doing as I please, and we've got the whole economy running, and I just, I'm secure in the fact that uh, God has promised me these things, and so I can just do whatever I want and tread all over that grace. This is what Paul is attacking. He says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means? And it's also what Paul attacks, particular to the sacraments, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he paints how the children of Israel had a baptism when they went through the Red Sea. Why is he doing this? And how they too had a Lord's Supper, the bread from heaven and the water from the rock, spiritual food and spiritual drink. What's the point he draws? They had these things too, yet nonetheless they sinned in such a terrible way with the golden calf that God did not allow them to enter the promised land. What's the parallel he's bringing out? Just because you have baptism and the Lord's Supper, I mean, he says these things were written for us. Just because you have baptism and the Lord's Supper doesn't mean that you can't abuse those things, that you can't use them in an ex opera operato way, that you can't wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross, remember your baptism and go, so I'm going to live however I want because that's freedom and at the end of the day I'll remember that I'm baptized. That's a baptism that is doing you no good, but in fact has actually become a servant of your sin, of your evil. The Lord's Supper can be the same way, just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament were that way. And that's why you find these expressions sometimes in the Psalms and in the Prophets where it says, you know, burnt offerings I did not desire. I don't, I don't want your thousands of sacrifices. I want you to actually be upright of heart. I want you to actually have justice and be merciful. Okay, so that's cutting through this spiritual phenomenon of ex opera operata, which is using the things of God as if it were an economy. And at the heart of that is this idea of the soul becoming secure. So we do not want to be secure. What's the opposite error of security? To be despairing be despairing. So you don't want to be despairing. Despairing at its heart, it's, despairing is really analogous to suicide. Suicide presents as if you're the victim, but the root of suicide is, I'll be my own God and take matters into my own hands. The root of suicide is pride, even though it presents as, uh, you know, as some sort of like, I'm the victim, I'm sad, I can't, I'm weak. Uh, at the heart is a stubborn, strong pride. The same is true for despair. Despair presents itself as, woe is me, I've sinned so much that God could never forgive me. Alas, I'm outcast. I could never try. What's, what would it be good for me to do a good work? It would never be good in the first place. Plus, it's just buried in all the other bad works I've done. You know, this is despair. But what's this prideful root of despair? 
that God says you're forgiven, that God says you're born from above, that God says he's renewed you, and you're denying all these things. And in your denial you're of what he says, you're asserting that he's a liar and you are true. Okay, So we don't want to be despairing, but we don't want to be secure. Those are the two ditches that we're avoiding here. And again, that's one frame, but it's very much in keeping with this frame that what God wants to work within us is contrition, trust, and love, or faith, trust, and love, that we, or excuse me, fear, trust, and love, that we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So again, what is God doing through the, through the forgiveness of sins and through the gospel? He's restoring us to the first commandment and then all the other commandments that flow from that because that's what it means to be human. It's how Adam and Eve were created. Fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. Okay, please. Yes, uh, versus hope um, and assurance. Is it, can the church offer assurance of one's salvation? Yes, absolutely. So it's God who offers it through his church. And assurance, assurance is kind of one of these words where like some people by assurance think um, security. And some people by insurance uh, or assurance, excuse me, simply mean it properly. And so if I, if I mean it properly, assurance would be a fine word because what is salvation predicated upon? It's predicated upon God's word. Well, how do I know that even though the church is telling me or the pastor is telling me or brothers and sisters in Christ are telling me my sins are forgiven, how do I know if God himself is actually forgiving them? I mean, again, this is where it's you must trust. You must cast yourself upon his word of mercy and entrust yourself to that mercy. There's no other move. There's no other move. Absolute certainty is never granted this side of heaven. Only way you can consider absolute certainty is like this. God has said, my sins are forgiven. He said this through a pastor whom he's authorized to forgive sins. He has said it. He does not lie. That's faith clinging to the word of God. That's assurance. But it's different than this airtight certainty upon which the old Adam within us wants to base security. As soon as you get certainty, the old Adam goes, there's the foundation I need. Now let me build a false religion that looks Christian, but is really just self-serving. Okay, so maybe we've, uh, any other questions or comments? Maybe we've, we've hit that. Okay, there's, there's one more. Um, are we still running the microphone? Oh, thanks. We lost our... About the fuss. Um, well, it just occurred to me as you were speaking that um, there's this correct. There's no substitute for sacrificing our own desires to the extent if we were to follow God's commandments, then we have to sacrifice those desires that keep us from doing so. So we can't then not make that sacrifice. Go up and receive you know, the Lord's Supper if we're not making that sacrifice of 
of setting aside our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have opportunity to uh, look at that as we progress along. I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the, I don't know that I call this like an airtight rational proof of Christianity, but it is nonetheless an effective proof of Christianity. If Christianity is a man-made religion, why does it go against everything that is within us? (laughs) On both sides of the coin. Not only the law, is that completely contrary to us and what we want by nature, but also the gospel. That's why the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Christianity is, one of the definitive proofs of Christianity is how completely alien and upside down it is from humanity and human religion. This is also then one of the distinctives of why Christianity sticks out as the one religion of grace on the face of the earth. Just, I mean, by grace, I mean pure grace. Other religions have, have this idea that God is, you know, maybe kind or maybe gracious or gracious only to an extent or to a degree. But the gospel of God is pure grace and pure and unbounded grace. Like your sins as great as they are, a drop of water in the ocean of his grace kind of grace. So that's absolutely the case and absolutely true. Now, again, God is God, and he's not going to let us up into the rarefied air that belongs to his and his alone. That's why there's the law and the gospel, and we find ourselves subjected to these forces. That's right and good and proper. We find ourselves unable to grasp a hold of anything other than his word. That's good and right and proper. And that keeps us from manipulating him. And that keeps us from, as if he could be manipulated, but you know what I mean. And that keeps us from these two ditches of security and despair. Two different kinds of pride, two different kinds of hardness of heart. Okay, so again, back to Chemnitz then. At question 123, what then is contrition? It is a sinner, or it is in a sinner, a serious fear of conscience that recognizes the wrath of God against sins and is sorry that it has offended God by this kind of sins. Question 124, since it is necessary in conversion that some contrition come first, so that the pastor of a church might accordingly rightly know how to teach repentance, and that the hearers might be able to examine themselves, whether they have a penitent or impenitent heart, say, I pray, what the things are that are required for true and in no way false contrition? Answer. For true contrition, there is required first acknowledgement of sins, so that a man instructed in the divine law might know what things God reckons and regards as sins in his judgment. Okay, so the first element is a noetic element, and that is that what defines a sin or not a sin is the law of God. So a minor point here would simply be our consciences have to be bound to the law of God, not to anything else. It's a false contrition that's sorry 
over false sins. So you present a biblical distinction between male and female and someone calls you sexist. Should you repent of that sin? No, because it's not a sin. God determines what sins are, not man. And if you did confess to that quote-unquote sin, you would have just committed a worse quote-unquote sin. So the first key is recognizing that God is God, nothing else. What he calls a sin is a sin, nothing less, nothing more. And especially important in our day and age is nothing more. Because all of Amer- the American religion right now is, is inventing sins. And on the other side of sin is some righteousness in their mind. Although, truth be told, the way America's working and the American religions right now is you're, you're sinning whether you do it or sinning whether you don't. So, do you, do you see race? Do you see color? You're a racist. According to America, do you not see color and not see? Well, you're a racist. <laughs> you see, so no matter what, you're a racist, and so you can see that there's no righteousness there. There's no way you're just going to be condemned into bending the knee and doing whatever you're told. Okay, so it's important to realize then how how essential it is to know God's law and be contrite towards God's law. Nothing more, nothing less. Please. Uh, you just said that uh, modern American Christianity is inventing sins or whatever. Well, I really meant the American religion. And, yeah. of course, Christianity is trying to kind of weave it, it together with that right now. Okay. Um, but anyway, my point is that this is normal. <laughs> I don't know if natural is right. But the um, Jews in the Old Testament did the same thing. That's where the Pharisees were getting off the rails. They, mm-hmm. they were inventing mm-hmm. all kinds of yeah, wonderful that point. went beyond the laws of Moses. Wonderful point. Absolutely. And sometimes their laws and their sins subverted God's law. Remember the whole bit about Corban where Jesus calls them out for that with their Corban? They violate the fourth commandment of God. This is, I, don't, I won't digress and go into it, but great point. Great point. Yes, right next to you, to your left. So glad you're bringing this up because I've been thinking since last week with the super fun list of things to consider on our sinfulness. It's very uncomfortable, but a practice we should be doing. The question comes, okay, now that we're starting to see the things we're doing that we didn't know were sins, what's the practical application on replacing those behaviors? Is it a work of the Holy Spirit that creates a different thought where you would normally be judging someone, now you're praying for them. I mean, how does this work when you see something that you do that's wrong? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. How does that all... Yeah, so I again, I, I think it's really helpful, and this is where uh, something like question 119 <coughs> can be very helpful, where it's the various divisions of sins... And so you start to identify, like, okay, and, and here, like, Vicar and I were just reading in the Augsburg Confession, there's this wonderful statement by Augustine, where Augustine says, true satisfaction for sins, that is, making right on sins, is rooting out their causes. So if you've got actual sins you're doing, 
root out the causes that get you there. That's the project. Now, with some sins, though, especially maybe sins of, um, of the heart, of the emotions, and uh, maybe to some degree of the intellect, what you, what you might realize is that you're gated toward this sin. So we, we talk about this uh, even in a hereditary sort of way. Oh, he's got the roadie temper, you know, or something like that, right? So, yeah, we, we're going to try to uproot that, but we're going to find sins that aren't easily uprooted. There, so much of the spiritual battle is going to be on continuing to uphold the law of God that it is right and I am not. I am not justified in this thing. Who will save me from this body of death? So in, in terms of these, um, you know, I've used that, that sermon analogy from Bogert's Hammer, Hammer of God where you've got the little rocks you can get rid of and the middle rocks that take a long time. And then sometimes you hit bedrock and you just realize I am trying everything I can and not getting rid of this, then the, what is the biblical, like, how, is, how can we respond to the biblical condemnation of these things? First of all, keep digging. Second of all, don't, get, don't ever get bamboozled into thinking because it's, it's not removable by you in this life that that's just then natural or how you are. Or, um, and maybe the Bible's wrong. So those are the ways that the devil attacks those particular sins, getting you to think it's not a sin. You want to hold to the fact that it is a sin, hold to the fact that it is, that it is damnable, hold to the fact that if you could change it in an instant, you would, and then keep trying to fight as you have strength and energy. That's the task. That's the wrestle. With St. Paul, at the end of the day, we say, who will save us from these bodies of death? So we're going to recognize that we're not going to be able to fully accomplish what we want to accomplish. But that would be a perspective then on those, um, the, those sins that we have a hard time, as Augustine says, um, attacking the sources of. It's like the source is me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sinner, and so this is a particular sinful uh, way that I'm given over to. I need to acknowledge that, confess that, fight against that, and I need to realize it's just going to be a, a lifelong battle. Okay, just a little further then with uh, Chemnitz. So again, acknowledgement of sins, question 124, and paying a special attention always, but in our day and age, I, I just can hardly think of anything more spiritually important, and that is that we define sins as God defines them, and we not allow ourselves to submit to a false god by confessing false sins. So guard your consciences to be accused by God's law and God's law only. (laughs) And then once that law has done its work, of course we confess and receive his forgiveness. Okay, 125, does one teach rightly and sufficiently regarding contrition when only a catalog of sins is set forth. By no means. For in an exhortation to repentance, the matter is not to be led to this point, that the law works wrath 
and that the ministry of the law might be the ministration of death and condemnation. So let, let me, I think I read that bad expression. Let me try that again. By no means, for in an exhortation to repentance, the matter is to be led to this point, that the law works wrath and that the ministry of the law might be the ministration of death and condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 9. The second thing, therefore, that belongs to true repentance is that the sinner seriously acknowledge the magnitude and abomination of sin in the sight of God. This takes place when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans 1.18 Namely, that man might be shown by the law that God is seriously and fearfully angered by sins and that he will avenge them with temporal and eternal punishments. So again, that's earthly punishments in this life and punishments in that life which is to come unless the sinner is again reconciled to God by Christ, the mediator. So there again is, to use our language that we've interjected, there is our assurance It is the work of Christ the mediator. It is the word of Christ the mediator who cannot lie. If we're clinging to that desperately, as it were, in full trust and trust only, I mean, because that's all you have, then we're safeguarded against those other ditches of security or despair. 126, if then one admits his ungodliness and knows that God is angry with him and offended thereby, but meanwhile not concerned about this, I think that's the key, not concerned about this, continues in sins, is he truly repentant? Does he have true contrition? Answer, by no means. So again, we're not talking about someone who admits his ungodliness, knows God is angry with him, but despite all his intentions, continues in certain sins. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about someone who knows his ungodliness, knows God's anger, and is not concerned about it. That's a definition of a soul that has security. That spiritual problem. Okay. So he's secure. He doesn't care. He's not concerned. Is such a person truly penitent? Does he have true contrition? Answer no. And now some biblical examples are going to be given. For Saul indeed confesses that he does wrong in persecuting David. 1 Samuel 24 and 26 are in view. David also was not aware that or excuse me, was not unaware that murder and adultery are such sins as God abhors, yet both indulge in their passions and nonetheless commit those sins and securely, there's the language, securely persevere in them. The third thing, therefore, in which the true nature of contrition chiefly consists is this, that by that revelation of sin and divine wrath, 
the heart of a sinner is moved and affected. And that doesn't have to be an emotional response or reaction. It doesn't have to be. But the heart nonetheless is, the soul nonetheless is moved and affected. In fact, as scripture says, is shattered, broken, and crushed. And again, I, that, I wouldn't mistake this for like emotion. Emotion often accompanies it, but it isn't all, doesn't always accompany it. So shattered, broken, and crushed, seriously considering for itself that by its sins, <clears throat> it has drawn upon itself the wrath of God and eternal punishment. Therefore, it no longer takes pleasure in its ungodliness, nor does it keep the intention to continue in it. So Saul knew he was doing wrong in persecuting David. Did he stop? Nope. He kept on going. David knew that it was wrong to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Did that sinful course stop? No, he went on to try to deceive the husband and ended up murdering the husband and then was going to go along as if nothing happened. So these are examples of spiritual states in which we can fall, or to which we can fall, such that the wrath of God and eternal punishment just become words and the heart becomes impenitent and hardened. So the opposite of this, then, is that the heart is struck, is shattered, is broken, is crushed. And that's what happens when David... Here's Nathan's sermon. Remember, he captures him in the parable, and David is struck to the heart. And so his heart is shattered, broken, crushed, and he no longer takes pleasure in its ungodliness. <clears throat> so continuing with Kenneth's description, nor does it keep the intention to continue in it. And this is especially obvious in manifest sins. In fact, I would say that that's largely what's in view here. Um, Not so much in sins of weakness. If I can finish this first, and I think it'll, Chemnet sets us up for that, and I'll I'll be happy to do that. I was planning on doing that uh, anyway. Okay, so here we go. So, I'm back to the description. It's ungodliness, nor does it keep the intention to continue in it, but in sorrow over sins committed, turns itself from them, and in true concern and with all care follows and pursues this, that it be not left under the wrath of God and eternal damnation and perish. This then is true contrition, From this, it can be rightly judged that the statement of Augustine is exceedingly true, that many are not penitent, but imagine that they are. And, okay, so a couple things then. The first thing would be, note that Chemnitz's expectation is that pastors can, again, on the basis of someone's words, nobody can, no pastor can read a heart, but on the basis of someone's words can determine penitence or impenitence. And likewise, Kenneth's assumption is that we 
can determine penitence and impenitence within ourselves. These are objective categories with objective criteria. So it's not, you know, this hidden, wishy-washy sort of thing. And there are diagnostic questions that can be asked. Do I, desi- do I acknowledge this is wrong? Do I desire to be done with it? Do I, or as the rite of confession says, do I want to do better? Okay, those are, um, those are important. So manifest sins, uh, okay, no, let's take this track. All right. So then if every, if, um, <clears throat> let's, let's zoom in on this phrase because this is one of the devil's tricks that he likes to do. So go to 126, the question itself. I'll try to make this fast because I know we're out of time. So if then one admits his ungodliness and knows that God is angry with him and offended thereby, but meanwhile, not concerned about this, continues in sins. Okay, so again, I think the not concerned is particularly in view, depending upon the nature of the sin. But continues in sins, is he truly repentant? By no means. Okay, but take that at face value. If you're truly repentant, then it means you no longer want to continue in your sins. So then if you're truly repentant, you won't continue in your sins. So if you're truly repentant, you will, re- you will reach a point in which you are no longer sinning. You see how Satan does that? Okay, so that's a trick of the devil where, yes, those manifest sins... A manifest sin is, hey, Saul, are you sure you want to have your armor bearers spend the next 30 minutes putting on your armor and your stable boys saddle up the horses so you can go chase down David again? Are you sure you want to do that? That, and he says, yeah. One doesn't slip and fall into chasing down David to persecute him again. That's a manifest kind of sin. Likewise, even if David's sin of uh, being, you know, lusting after Bathsheba is um, a sin of weakness, it very quickly becomes a manifest sin in that he engages the whole process fully and then does whatever he can to cover it up. That's a manifest sin. One doesn't slip and fall into that sin. Okay? Those are things that you can stop and should stop. Nobody coming to a a confessor says, you know, I'm very sorry, I murdered this person, Um, I'm going to, but I need to murder five other people. Okay, that's not penitent. Okay, so what about, though, the person that says, I'm struggling with my relationship to food, I'm obviously overweight. And I have a really hard time disciplining myself and especially in the moment, not overeating or binging. That is a sin you can slip into, isn't it? That is a sin that you can confess, I want to be done with this. And indeed, you could be done with it for counting every single second like it was a year. You could be done with it for a whole week and then slide right back into it again. 
these are not manifest kinds of sins. These are sins of weakness, sins that we slide into despite our best interest, you know, our, our best intentions. So, yeah, can these categories at times get blurry? Sure, but they're still categories. Just because there's exceptions doesn't mean that there isn't a categorical difference between those kinds of sins. So again, the diagnostic questions, do you recognize that this is against God's law? Do you recognize that this is sin that damns you? Do you want to be rid of this sin? Are you willing to take the steps necessary to minimize it or uproot it? Those are kinds of diagnostic questions, and if you answer yes to those, um, that is a sign of a penitent heart. Okay, so does that do enough justice on that sins of weakness versus, right, versus others? So, yeah. Okay, very good. Well, we're five minutes over, so let's just stop there. I think that got us, that got us through contrition, didn't it? Next week, free will or human powers. The Lord be with you.